if you're anxious or depressed or just highly emotional, positive or negative, you should not use your intuition. So there's good data to back that up, that you can't tap into these subtle unconscious signals if you're highly emotional. Doing art would be, you know, a good space, and or, yeah, like it's almost like a sandbox to train your intuition. Puts imagery in this spot between our thoughts and our emotions. Welcome to The Common Creative. I'm Paul Fairweather. And I'm Chris Meredith. And we're on a mission to lift the veil on creativity in business through the lens of ideas, stories and illustration. This week's guest is Professor Joel Pearson, a, a giant in the area of cognitive neuroscience, a professor at the University of New South Wales. And what's most interesting about him is that he's researching those things that apparently don't withstand scientific investigation. That's to say, the imagination, illust- uh, intuition, and creativity. And a very interesting journey that he's had. He started out in the arts and filmmaking, and he's flipped and flopped between the two to end up where he is now. So let's get him in. Joel Pearson, welcome to the Common Creative Podcast. Thank you, Paul. It's a pleasure. <laughs> it's a, a huge Privileged to have you on the show, Joel. Thanks for joining us. Then we're dying to dive in to, to ask you about, about neuroscience and particularly your, your learnings about the imagination, creativity, intuition, emotion, all these exciting subjects. But we, we've got to start with your background because you started your career, I think I might say, as an artist and you've moved into the world of science. And I'm wondering how that works, an artist in a scientific environment. What does that bring to the party? How does it feel? Yeah, so my background yeah, academically is all over the place. I, um, I studied both art and, and science, uh, and it began way back in high school. I just couldn't choose between the two. I was pulled in two different directions. And as time went on, I kind of realized that it was really the discovery process for both, whether it was you know, trying to make a short film and how it would make the audience feel, or it was the discovering how the brain works, how the mind works. The excitement around that felt the same to me. It was kind of this discovery, you know, this sort of on a, almost this pioneering thing, like you're on a, a sailboat, you know, 100 or 200 years ago, finding a new continent. That's kind of what it felt like. And so for me, art and science felt very, very similar. Most people sort of feel, think that's a funny idea, but um, yeah, the discovery is the common denominator, I think. But, but science... It's all about brutal discipline, isn't it? You know, a, a hypothesis that you stress test, you run experiments, you decide if you're hypo, all of that good stuff. And and science, arts, surely is more free flowing. More, I'm using that word intuition. I mean, how does a, an artist live in a, in a scientific environment? Or are there two parts of your brain that you can use in those different? <laughs> yeah, <contexts? it's>, it. <laughs> I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't use the word brutal, but it is certainly there are there are differences. I mean, the way I like to practice science is probably more like a startup or more like art. So we do something called agile science. It's a methodology I've developed. Um, and you can have a look on the, my website to hear more, read more about that. But it's doing science in a faster sprints sort of, we have minimum viable experiments, like you'd have a minimum viable uh, product. Um, and that's doing science in a little bit of a different way. And so that, that speeds things up. It's sort of, you have sprints, it's faster, slower. Um, yeah, it's a different kind of, experience and is more dynamic to the traditional science let's say um but yeah there are there are differences 
I like to do science, you know, in a, in a creative way and in an intuitive way, let's say, and intuition is actually one of the things we study in the lab. Um, but yeah, for me, it feels natural. Um, yeah, because uh, what what you study are those things that I think everyone has always assumed you can't measure. You can't say intuition, imagination, emotion, those kind of things. Um, yeah. I know Paul's dying to jump in the west because Paul and I have developed a a way of looking at creativity through through the lens of ideas and stories, but particularly illustrations. Paul and I both when we're not working visual artists and we know you've done some work to understand how the mind interprets uses imagery to, uh, as opposed to what it hears um and what it thinks is that right what can you tell us about how illustrations play out in the human mind yeah so so mental imagery or the imagination is this broad sort of banner which covers a lot of things typically covers mental imagery, visualization, capacity, often also creativity. So we, we sort of study all those things, uh, but in particular, mental imagery or the visual imagination. Um, so we've been studying that for almost 15 years now. Um, and more recently, it's become very popular in the general media because of this condition called aphantasia. So this is people that are acquired or, or born without a visual imagination. So their mind's eye is blind, if you like. So they can't visually imagine. So if they think about what an apple looks like, they don't see an apple, they don't experience an apple. It's just nothing black on black, if you like. Um, now, and often, often those people are more surprised to hear that people that do have visual imagery actually experience something. They're actually consciously catching a you know, glimpse of that apple. It's not the same as looking at an apple, but you do experience something. Um, so we've been studying that. We've been studying mental imagery for a long time. And a lot of the obstacles there have been, like you sort of mentioned, measurement. How can you measure these things, which are these private internal experiences that no one else can see or share? So how on earth can you measure those things? So we've, over the years, we've developed a number of different objective, reliable ways to measure them. So that's also a mission of the lab is to develop objective, reliable ways to measure the human mind, right? So Think of a blood test for the mind, something that, that is really objective and reliable. It's not subjective. It's not just based on you trying to give me a number based on your imagination, right? We want to object, objectively tap into that and measure that. We can do that with visual illusions. We can now do that with the pupil response. So the pupil in your eye will respond to what you imagine. And we can use that to measure it in really interesting ways. So yeah, that's just a sort of a, a really, really brief introduction to visual imagery, something called aphantasia. There's also something called hyperphantasia at the other end of the spectrum for people that have very strong and rich visual imagery. Um, and so there's a full spectrum there and most people are probably in the middle somewhere, um, but there's a measuring what it is, how do you measure imagery? What are the mechanisms in the brain? Why do some people have it, some people don't? And then we have a whole research stream looking at what are the impacts to people's lives? If you think in pictures or not, how does that change, you know, looking for your friend in the crowd? How does it change your investing choices? How does it, in, maybe it changes design, all these things. So we have programs of research looking into that as well. Uh, Joel, I just, uh, I'm particularly interested in that, in that um, phenomena and 
in particular to, you know, we, we talk about ideas and stories. And I know that, you know, when you tell a story, um, often it's more, you know, convincing or, you know, without, without realising it that you're, you know, you're actually putting an image in your mind. Uh, I did some work with an acting coach recently. The quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog and, you know, and, and actually, you know, visualising that. <laughs> How do you think, um, you know, like, you know, what's your sense of the role in imagery in, in telling stories and, and communicating ideas? Yeah, so there's definitely a role for, for visual imagery in that, absolutely. And so, so here's, an exa- here's an experiment we ran a couple, two years ago now where we had people come into the lab, uh, people with imagery and people with no imagery. They sat down in a dark little room and they read these short stories on the computer screen. And then we design custom designed stories that are meant to be scary. So the things like you're swimming in the ocean, um, you see a shadow moved underneath you. Then you see, then something bumps your foot. Then you look back at the sh- at the beach and people are screaming and waving and it kind of escalates bit by bit until the shark bites you or you're rock climbing and you slip. And so these kind of quite scary things. Now, what you might expect is if you have visualization capacity and you're reading that you start visualizing the shark and the shadow and the screams um, and we measure people's skin conductance response, which is just a way of measuring micro changes in how much people sweat. When people get more uh, scared, um, more aroused emotionally, they sweat more and we can measure that fairly easily. So when we measured that in people that have visual imagery, we saw this nice linear increase that goes up and up during the story. When we compare that to people without any visual imagery, it flatlined. We didn't see this nice increase. So this is really the strongest evidence so far we've had that sort of links, sort of puts imagery in this spot between our thoughts and our emotions. So so it links our thoughts and our emotions together by almost tricking the brain, if you like, into thinking the thing you're thinking or reading is real, right? Because when we, if you're imagining a shark, the parts of your visual cortex are actually active in a similar way to if you actually looked at a shark. So it kind of, in a very real sense, it is tricking the brain and thinking um, the shark might actually be there. So you're going to have a stronger emotional response. So if you're telling a story to people um, and you can bring visual imagery in, it is going to tap into their emotions much more strongly. I, I was just going to say, I, I'm going to tell you a story of watching the movie Alien. The first one and the chief engineer ah. is in the engine room and he's trying to there are these drops coming up from the ceiling he's, he's cooling down using the drops to kind of cool himself he takes his cap off and enjoys these drops we can see the tentacle of an alien drops down behind him but he can't see it and i remember physically brushing my own shoulder in the cinema to get the, the alien's tentacle off my <laughs> back <laughs> um so i guess i'm a visual but it must mean that i've got What's the word? Uh, Appalachia, or what the word? It must, it must be a very visual person. Oh, aphantasia. Aphantasia. Well, yes. Yeah, it sounds like you're <laughs> embodying that. Like you're embodying that sensation that you're watching in the, on the film, and your body, you know, your, your your muscles are probably tingling and, and responding, like you're, you know, you're, these things we have in our brain called mirror neurons, uh, ah. and so it's you're making it real for you. So, Joe, look, yeah. question: What? 
I'm so excited by this idea that we, we all, I keep having to check myself, I keep saying intuitively what you say feels right, and that there I'm using the word intuition to, to talk about what we're talking about. Um, <laughs> it's, I mean, we all know that we have an intuition, we all know that we're creative, we all know that we're highly emotional, and I, I guess I'm, I'm just surprised how, particularly in the world of business, we've sort of been trained to ignore or compartmentalize all this stuff and so we, we we're sort of brought up to be mini robots you know this is what you do these are the rules we follow this is how the world works um mm. I, I suppose one of my questions is why have we ignored all this powerful stuff for so long and as a follow-on for that i, I, I read something that said you, you we can train you you'd, you'd said that we can train people to be more intuitive i'd love to hear more about that but firstly why have we ignored all this stuff for so long yeah so it's it's yes i think it's for a number of reasons probably mostly that it's been so difficult to measure for so long and when something's difficult to measure like i was talking about earlier um if it's purely subjective a lot of scientists, a lot of people in business just won't trust it, right? They'll be like, well, that's, that's just, you know, subjective people's opinions about this. We don't have the hard data, the hard science. Um, and if you can't measure something accurately and reliably, you don't have the numbers, people won't trust it. They won't want to measure it. They won't want to improve it, right? But we've seen, uh, you know, just in the last sort of last five years or, or, or a little bit more, that these so-called soft skills, creativity, um, critical thinking, emotional intelligence, um, and, and a few others have been ranked at the top of many lists. This is the future of education and the future of work, right? So they're really, these things now, I mean, I hate calling them soft skills because they're really hard skills because they're so hard to measure and they're so hard to track, but they're really becoming one of the most sort of valuable parts of education and business, um, because they're so sort of valuable and they're hard to measure hard to improve. So that's kind of one of the things we've been working on in the lab to develop ways to objectively measure. So we've done that with mental imagery, with the imagination. We've done that with intuition, which I'll get to in a second. Um, we're starting to play around and trying to do that with creativity now. So the idea is to have a blood test, have an objective measure for these things. So that that is also scalable. So people can measure these at home in the workplace. They can We can then build um, services and products to try and increase intuition, to increase visualization capacity, to increase creativity um, for everyone, right? The question I wanted to ask is you mentioned about um, home, you know, you can take this home and it just reminds me, you know, there's a lot of stuff that Chris and I have been talking about recently is about hybrid working, working from home. And I saw an article yesterday about mm. um, how, uh, how much more important uh, EQ is at the moment, emotional uh, intelligence, and I'm just wondering, you know, if um, you know if there's a if there's a difference in the in the stuff that you're looking, the impact that you're looking between what we're doing here or face to face. Now, obviously, in this case, where we've got a bit of a a visual imagery issue, <laughs> which is very appropriate, um, is uh, that um, you know whether whether it, whether it makes a difference. Um, so I just have to tell you a short story, which we can cut out if it doesn't work. But I toasted TEDx Brisbane, uh, and our very first event we had 550 people, but we had half in the th one theater and the other half were in a theater watching the imagery and listening um, by remote. And it was all you need is was the theme mm -hmm. for the day. And the first 
session was all you need is to see. And we got on the stage and we launched it and they closed the doors to the theatres and they had run the visual cord uh, through the door and it cut it like a pair of scissors. <laughs> and so that session, those people could only only listen, but it was all you need to do is to see. Anyway, so um, having a sort of a similar experience here. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the question, come back to the question, um, do you think, you know, online or face-to-face has any, any impact in the stuff that you're studying in terms of, you know, the power of imagery? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we've all experienced those differences. And, you know, while Zoom and, and video and audio is great, it's just no, it's still no comparison, I think, to to being in the same room. So, yeah, like you said, emotional intelligence, there's lots of elements to that. And part of it is sort of being able to read other people's emotions and then being able to respond to those emotions in an appropriate way. And when you're only seeing, you know, someone's face, you can't see their arm movements, their how they cross their legs or not. There's all these other subtle cues that give so much rich um, emotional information about where the person's at, their intent with what they're saying, and it's just really hard to recreate that and catch a, you know, even a glimpse of that um, just in Zoom, just with video. You know, maybe virtual reality will get us there at some stage. Um, if we can capture sort of have whole body tracking and things and being in a immersed environment. But yeah, at, at the present, I, you know, it's, it's, it's really hard to capture that. Right. And I almost find that. So we're talking about mental imagery. If you have just the audio, um, you're on the phone or, you know, then you can use your mental imagery. But if you're looking at someone's face through, you know, on the screen, the camera, you're not going to use your imagery as much because you're seeing their face. And so it's kind of one or the other. Um, and it's, it's interesting when I, I sort of go on the radio fairly regularly now on a show here in Sydney, and often people prefer not to make eye contact when they're talking on the radio because they actually, because the listeners at, you know, at home or in the car aren't going to see what we're seeing with our eyes. They don't want to try and communicate extra things. So if I'm, if I'm using my hands now and just, you know, trying to figure show show things in space that no one can see that's kind of a waste of information so i don't want to do that i don't want to be tempted to do that i want to try and put it all into my audio so it's a it's a much richer experience so anyway my point was that there's a there can be a clash between mental imagery and seeing someone's face on the screen when you're using zoom from working at home um and i often find it's a richer experience um just talking on the phone with audio only you reminded me of that expression that, that radio is theatre for the mind. And I know exactly what you mean. Sometimes you hear yeah. someone's voice and you conjure up these images in your mind. But when you first see them later, it's a huge difference. You've built a picture in your mind based around what you hear. And it's very different from what you see. Very interesting idea. Maybe on Zoom calls, we should just switch all the cameras off and just listen. <laughs> yeah, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, I wonder, um, Joel, if I can go back to this, something I, I'm just so fascinated, this, this, the heresy that you're committing, you're kind of measuring, talking about harnessing the power of these weird concepts like intuition, imagination, creativity, and so on, which of course is very, very close to our hearts for Paul and I. But um, I wonder if you could tell us a bit more about this, why intuition could be a 
good thing. I think you've done an experiment which shows that intuition helps quality of decision-making yeah. and speed of decision-making. But I'm thinking we don't want airline pilots to be intuitive, do we? We want them to follow their rule. But what, how can intuition really <laughs> help yeah. in, in the world of work? Yeah, so that's that's the that's the question, right? That's a great question. So let's rewind a little bit um, to when we first published our first piece of work on this in uh, 2016. So we figured out a whole new way, so tabula rasa approach to studying intuition. We wanted to measure it in the lab. We didn't want to use questionnaires or interviews or anything like that. So we developed a really interesting way of combining methods from consciousness research, from neuroscience. And we figured out a way to measure intuition in the lab to incept information into people's brains that was unconscious and then we could track how they could use that unconscious information to make decisions we showed that in real time people can use that information to make faster and more accurate decisions also if you ask them about their confidence they report being more confidence when this information's there and they don't really even know they're doing this right it's all unconscious happening in the background they're just making these really, really simple, super simple decisions. And we're feeding in this unconscious information the whole time. So anyway, we've done a whole lot of experiments on that and have sort of mathematical models and have physiological data to back this up. And then since then, I've just sort of developed a, a new theory about intuition, that it really, the best way of thinking about it, the best way of understanding it is that it is this practical use of unconscious information in our brains to make better decisions or actions. So I include actions there to include sport. Um, and there's a range of situations there. And once you think about intuition like this, um, so just to be clear for the audience, you know, I'm not talking about intuition being anything supernatural or spiritual or anything outside of what we can already explain with science. So once we have this, this working definition, we can start to figure out these scenarios, like you're saying, Chris, that when intuition is good or when it might not be good, right? So for years in psychology, people have argued about intuition is a good thing. You should trust it. Oh, no, it's really bad. It's a cognitive bias. It'll lead you astray. You'll make terrible decisions. Don't use intuition. Once you understand what it is, you can start separating out these different scenarios. And so I've kind of done that and boiled it down to five rules, let's just say five general rules about when you should or should not use your intuition. And they're things like, you know, if you're emotional, if you're anxious or depressed or just highly emotional, positive or negative, you should not use your intuition. So there's good data to back that up, that you can't tap into these subtle unconscious signals if you're highly emotional, All right? That's one of the rules. Uh, another one is you need to have experience with something. You need to have somewhat, you need to be a master, if you like, or have mastery of the domain, right? If you've if you've never played tennis before and you step onto the court and with a tennis coach, there's no point trying to use your intuition to play amazing tennis, right? It's just not going to work. And it's the same for trading stocks or anything, right? You need to have learned it. Your brain needs to learn these associations between this unconscious information and positive or negative outcomes. So you need to learn this. Um, so that's two rules. Other things like context matters. If you learn things in one context, taking it to a very different context will kind of break that learning. So context is also important. There's another one I'll just quickly throw in here about yeah. like call decisions around primal brain systems. And this is a sort of a controversial one. But when you look at the, the data, you should not use your intuition for anything that is potentially addictive 
right? Or can drive your behavior in very addictive or motivational ways. That's everything from eating to drinking, to smoking, to gambling, to checking your email, to, to social media, anything I do that's addictive. Want that ninth glass of beer. That's, that's a bad idea. <laughs> exactly right. Yeah. Or the, I want the donuts or the ice cream or whatever it is. I, maybe I'll just play one more, one more uh, go, go at the pokey machines, right? So that you have this drive and it feels intuitive. It feels right. My body wants it. And that's not intuition. That doesn't make sense at all to include that as intuition. That's other things at play here. Um, and so when it comes to anything like that, steer clear of intuition. You said the yep. five and I want to hear, the, I want to hear yeah. the fifth. But there was one thing though, something that a coach once said to me is whatever you give your body, it wants more of. Uh, and I just wonder how that fits in. Because, you know, if you give it, like if you give it donuts, it wants more donuts. You know, if you lie on the couch, it wants to lie on the couch. But if you go for a run, then the next day it wants to go for a run. You feed it good food, it wants good food. I, I, that's probably a little bit different. Maybe you can come back to that after you tell us what the fifth. Yeah, what's number five? Is. I'm excited. Well, it kind of fits in. Yeah, the five is is around probabilities and probabilistic thinking. So this is a large one and it sort of encapsulates a lot of uh, cognitive biases and things like that. Um, but we're just really bad at understanding probabilities, um, whether it's a small probability, um, the probability of you know climate change, of getting cancer from smoking, or I'm trying to understand a virus like COVID, right? We're just, we're just, we don't experience these things because they're low probabilities. But it's in general, our brains don't work well with probabilities. We've got to train ourselves for a long time to be good at understanding probabilities. And so anything around probabilities, again, don't use your intuition for that. Right. Actually, there's 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 um one of the TED speakers, um, uh, and he's got a, it might be Ridley. I can't remember one of the psychologists. He talks about this thing of saying that uh, more often than not, if you're trying to make a decision about something, um, you get a better outcome if you take the advice of someone else rather than your own advice. Um, but I wonder whether that is if you look at those rules. That's because, you know, if I'm thinking about what Chris should do, then I'm not emotionally involved. Um, you know, I can see what experience he has or doesn't have. You know, I, I, uh, I can see the context he's in. Whereas, you know, because we have these cognitive biases that, are, you know, maybe it clouds our view. And, and I've never really understood that. But I, what do you think that that sort of fits into your model? Yeah, I think it, it fits in a lot of, I think there's a lot of talk around that in terms of how bad we are predicting what our future selves like. So we think that, you know, so this, this, is, this is the science of happiness, for example. Um, so Dan Gilbert has a fantastic book on, on a lot of this stuff. Um, so if we're bad at predicting what we're going to be like in the future, we're going to be bad at predicting what things we're going to like or not like in the future as well, right? You know, maybe we get a tattoo when we're young. We're not going to like that when we're old or we want to live in a, a beach shack when we're young, but not when we're old or whatever it might be. We're different people as we age and we under predict that. So we tend to think that, you know, I'm now I'm Joel. This is what I'm going to be like for, for the rest of my life. And we completely fail to understand that in five years, in one year, I'm going to be a very different person in 10 years, a totally different person. And so you, it's actually more useful to get advice from someone else who's done that thing rather than trying to predict how you're going to do in that thing in the future. So looking at people, your neighbors next to you, rather than trying to predict yourself in the future is where a lot of that comes mm. from. Joe, I, I, my head's spinning. This is f fabulous stuff. <laughs> um, I'm 
how has this affected you personally? I mean, there's the artist side of you, and, and you're sort of learning about, yeah, you know, intuition, imagination, decision making, all those, all those things. Are, are there anything, anything you? I'll tell you one thing I've, I've thought of. For example, if I'm, I'm guessing that it helps to be in a positive frame of mind, to be more intuitive, to be relaxed, and so on. Uh, I'm thinking having a picture of a pet or the family near your desk would yeah. kind of keep your mood a bit better, and that might make you better at decision making. That's my little idea. How has it affected you personally? Anything you've done to <laughs> embody your own research findings? Yeah, I mean, so now I now I have these sort of five rules. I try and have a framework for understanding what intuition is. I try and have a daily practice, or as often as I can, um, at work, at home. If I go for a run in the morning, I try and use intuition for the physical activities as well. Um, so I recommend people do that first, a very safe, small decisions, you know, we're not sort of trying to just jump in the deep end and use intuition for life or death or, you know, buy a house, don't buy a house, you know, relationship decisions, but small things, tea or coffee or th these little things practice trying to tap into that, that feeling, that gut feeling, that emotion, right? So we, we tend to feel these intuitive, it's intuitive information in the body. It's embodied. That's why people call it a gut response. So we feel it as an emotion. Maybe it starts in the gut and it's an un, a weird feeling. So just get people to try and pay attention to that. Maybe they're meeting someone for the first time or they're going to buy something off someone, whatever it might be. Try and just notice that feeling and then either go with it or don't go with it and just track how that decision went later on. Was it, are you, you know, did it work out in a good way or not? And just keep sort of, note, make a little note of those decisions and then bit by bit try and train your intuition, again, in very safe, small decisions, right? So I do that in, in my sort of day job as a scientist, I'll review grants, I'll review papers, I you know mark papers by students, um, and I'll try and use my intuition there. And often it pays out. So I'll start reading something and maybe a page or two in, I'll kind of go, hmm, get a funny feeling there's going to be something off with this. Mm, I don't know what it is. I'll make a note of it and I'll keep you know logically, rationally going through the thing. And often I will find something not great about it. And I just try and keep note of those kinds of something in that initial page or two of, of reading and is triggering something, right? So the way I explain that is over years and years of reading hundreds of papers, my brain has learned to associate certain cues and it could be, you know, 20, 30, 100 different things in the writing style, in the words used, in you know, all kinds of things. It's you, it's learned that they're predictors of good or bad outcomes. So my brain's picking up on that unconsciously and I'm tapping into that with a feeling. And so it's, it's a very simple sense. All it is, is it's a way to tap into extra information in our brains. That's a very simple way of explaining it. So I try and do that on a daily practice. If I'm, if I'm well rested, non-emotional, I'll try and do it. I sort of try and keep an eye on those five rules. Likewise, if I go for a run in the morning. I love running through a bush track. Um, you know, in Australia here, we have great bush, uh, running and if I'm tired, I'll slip and hurt myself. If I'm emotional, likewise, but otherwise I'll try and use sort of again to a flow state, use my intuition to naturally just control my, my feet placement, how fast I'm going, whether I need to slow down or speed up all those, those great things that, that sports people love. Um, and so I think, yeah, sports, again, is, a, is an amazing arena for thinking about intuition because people playing sport are just faced with having to make rapid decisions with only a tiny bit of information. And that's the space for intuition. 
Joel, I'm just actually, I'm interested, you know, we talk about idea stories and illustrations. And um, what about the intuition of an idea? Because we all have these great ideas that often don't turn out to be so great when, when they go into the real world. Uh, yeah. And maybe there's some of the stuff in there is about, you know, mastery or context. Um, but, uh, you know, I think it's curious because... Um, I certainly know that my intuition tells me some ideas are great, but my wife's intuition uh, has a very different view <laughs> of whether they're going to be turn out great or not. Careful what you say, Paul. <laughs> we can always edit that out. <laughs> um, I was going to just jump on board with that. With that, that the master. If, if we if we have experience and a fair amount of experience with that domain, that topic, um, so. We have experience. It's in a familiar context, right? So the context is actually a really interesting one for this, you know, working working at home versus working in your office, right? Because that's, that's going to be quite a change in context, which can affect intuition. But anyway, I think one of the things I suffer from when I have a, a new idea, I get very excited about it. I tend to get emotional, right? I get strong, positive emotions. I'm like, yeah, this is going to be amazing, right? And I think that strong, strong emotion, positive or negative, can throw off intuition, so if you win the lottery, you know, you're going to be completely blind mm-hmm. to any any intuitive decision making, right? Because you're just so pumped up and so excited. And so that's another thing we have to be careful of. If we have a in this sort of what seems like a, an amazing idea, you're going to be very pumped up. You're going to be very excited. You're going to be very positive emotionally. And that can probably cloud uh, intuition. So we need to be careful of that as well. Um, Joe, I wonder, I'm thinking about your sports example that, that's, this the role of intuition is very important for sports people who may be needing to make very fast decisions in the moment should artists better at fast decision making well, i'm thinking that art kind of encourages you to connect with quite vague loose ideas you explore things that you might not be able to express in other ways and i wonder if that's a wonderful training ground for listening to your intuition is but i guess my question in a nutshell is are artists better at intuition than non-artists yeah interesting interesting question yeah it, it, again intuitively it feels like maybe they are i haven't seen any good data on that um but i, I agree that yeah doing art would be you know a good space and oh yeah like it's almost like a sandbox to train your intuition one of the things I, I think, so not only when you have to make rapid decisions, but also when you have ambiguous situations or ambiguous data, right? And so that's kind of, there's, there's the time stuff being in a rush or when there's, the data is ambiguous. And our data from our lab-based measurements of intuition shows this. As you make the information more and more ambiguous and people just can't tell what's what, right? So there's more uncertainty. Intuition has to play more and more of a role and people will turn to intuition. So... Yeah, the, the world of art is a is a place where things are often very ambiguous, very uncertain, and I think yeah, intuition will naturally play a larger role in those scenarios. Um, yeah, so I think yeah, the other thing is there there is some data on sort of men and women, and certain women report using their intuition more. We haven't tested that in the lab yet, so these are sort of self reports, and so it's not clear whether that is actual use of intuition or it's more just the language used to describe everyday decision making um um, so it might be that people in the art world describe their decision making as being more intuitive 
um, and use more intuitive sounding language as well. So yeah, but, but great idea. It'd be a great experiment to run. Yeah. Just in terms of your own work, you said earlier that, you know, you flipped and flopped between your art and your science and, you know, studied both and was in one, the, the other, um, do you still have an art practice and are you still doing filmmaking? Uh, yeah, great question. Yeah, not not that much. I mean, I, I do draw a bit. I draw, but it's one of those things where when I do a little bit, I get frustrated because I want to do more and more and, and it, it kind of blows up. And I just don't have a lot of time to, to sink into that these days. I do a bit of filmmaking. You know, I recreate content and film things here in the lab. It's not the same as, you know, as doing sort of art art based um film but i enjoy i enjoy, i love watching film i still spend a lot of time watching films even classic films you know my favorites going back there thinking about this and that and how they would do that um so to answer not really i dabble a little bit but mainly because of having a you know young family as well um this is time constraints on things i just find it hard to get the time to to do the art that i'd like to do um just there was one other thing uh and um, just in terms of, you know, the, the, the cognition, you know, of using a pencil and, you know, we all know that, you know, we can use drawings both to interpret the world but also communicate differently. But there's lots of, you know, studies or observations that we think differently, you know, in images, which brings us back to, you know, where we started this conversation. Um, but, you know, do you have any sort of view of, you know, the science that you know and your experience of drawing? Well, that, that's an interesting question. I mean, there's been this big, the last few years have seen a sort of this, the, the idea of the adult coloring book has taken off. Um, I think there's now some couple of good studies on this showing that, that you know, adult coloring books can be very relaxing, right? Can re actually reduce anxiety. Um, and so that has taken off. That, and that's specifically using, a, you know, colored pencils typically to color in different colors and different sort of shapes on the page. Um, and that's really interesting because it utilizes different parts of our mind. It uses muscle. Obviously, you've got to use your hand and, and, and use a pencil. It utilizes visual parts of the brain, visual spatial parts of the brain. And so they're all the they're areas we know that can be heavily involved in mental imagery and also anxiety as well. So using those as a way to sort of stop rumination, stop anxiety is a really interesting uh, concept. And one of my colleagues uh, in Europe has actually done a, done a whole bunch of really cool experiments using the game Tetris, right? Very simple game. You're, you're kind of spinning around these blocks. And they've showed that after a, tra after a trauma, after something really bad happens, if you go and play um, Tetris for just a little while, you actually lo lower the, the probability of going to get getting PTSD afterwards. And in fact, just lowering the anxiety around that trauma afterwards. And it's the same idea, right? It's the same, you're hijacking, you're using these visual spatial parts of the brain so they can't ruminate, they can't go over and, and conjure up these mental images of the trauma, which is really a, a, a sort of part of how these uh, anxieties develop. So coming back to the pencil, yeah, that's, that's yeah, coloring, I think, is, is an interesting take on that. I haven't seen much in terms of writing words versus typing words versus dictating words. I can't think of any, any studies that have looked into that. That's fascinating. My, my daughter, by the way, is a professional athlete and she does adult coloring books. They spend long periods waiting for a race to start or between events. 
Um, and I know, I'm, I'm sure it's no accident that she, she uses these beautiful uh, patterns and colouring to, to train her brain to relax and not worry about the events about them. Very interesting, that. Maybe I should try it myself. Um, Joel, it's been a, an absolute fascinating conversation and I think we could talk uh, for a long time <laughs> because there's so many, there's so many um, observations and insights that you have into the, the, I suppose, the tools and techniques that Chris and I use uh, in in engaging with people in business around creativity, and so it's absolutely, uh, you know, absolutely fascinating. And I'm sure there's a, a greater depth of <laughs> knowledge that you have that you could share. But we are under time constraint, and you need to get back to your lab uh, to <laughs> do more research. Uh- if people want to find out more about you, I, th- I think I saw you've got a book coming. Where can we find out more about Joel Pearson? Yeah, so you, you just Google Joel Pearson. You can find lots on me. I have a university uh, website, but also profjoelpearson.com is my main website. And from there, you can launch off into Future Minds Lab. that talks about our research. We do fundamental research. We do research with companies, design education products for companies, things like that at the university but for companies. Um, you can find more information about agile science, that new sort of science 2.0 thing I talked about. And yeah, I'm going to have a, uh, a sort of book on intuition, sort of how to utilize all the science we have around intuition to make better decisions. So that's, that'll be coming out uh, in a little while, probably next year. Um, so yeah, oh, I'm always happy to, to answer questions on Twitter or via email. Thank you so much, Joel. You've got my intuition fired up. <laughs> I can't wait to apply some art to my business <laughs> practice. Um, you've given me so many ideas. And, and that, that top tip for me is you, know, you watch out for your intuition if you're emotional or if you're in an area that you're not familiar with. But harness the power of your intuition if you are comfortable, you are feeling positive. Yeah, very exciting. And I hope there'll be many more people doing the agile science that you do in future. Thank you so much. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you both. It was great yeah, fun. Thanks, thanks, Joel. It's been great. Likewise, Paul. So how about that, Paul? I, I learned so much about things that you're not supposed to learn about in the field of science, uh, and particularly the role of intuition and, of course, how illustrations bring stories to life for some people. I think we've said before that Yuri Hassan is our poster, a poster professor for ideas and stories that matter, but I think he's got some competition now from Professor Joel Pearson. Uh, what a fascinating insight into the brain, as you say, into imaging, stories, intuition. Uh, it was fantastic. I know I always say this almost every time, that we could have talked for hours, but really this one we could have gone on and on all day. It was so enlightening. Well, now we'd love to hear from you, our listeners. If you've got any comments, pop them in the chat box below. I'm sure you've already hit subscribe if you haven't already, but please Hit subscribe to make sure you find out about future episodes. And we look forward to seeing you on this week's edition of The Common Creator. And if you do have a moment, please give us a rating, preferably five stars, uh, and a, uh, a recommendation. It just helps us to spread the news of The Common Creative. Cheers. See you next week.